Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation podcast. Welcome to another episode of Mintel's Little Conversation, where our experts bring you fresh ideas and new perspectives on how consumers eat, drink, shop, groom and think. I'm Andrew Davidson, SVP and Chief Insights Officer for Mintel Compare Media, based in New York. And in today's episode, we will be discussing a topic that is very much on everybody's minds at the moment, and that is work, and what work will look like in the future. Now, the first part of what you'll hear today was recorded a few weeks back before the spread of COVID-19 started to really impact our daily lives. When I sat down with Dr. Bahis Ilhan, Richard Cope and Lily Harder, three of our most forward-thinking experts. In the second part of this episode, my guests and I revisit the topic to discuss how the COVID-19 crisis will reshape our working lives in the future. With that, let's get started with an introduction to our guests. Joining me to discuss this important topic that really impacts everything, I have a fascinating panel of experts in the US. We have Lily Harder in Ohio, uh, and we welcome back Dr. Bahis Ilhan, who today is in San Francisco. And we have Richard Cope joining us from London. Welcome to the pod. Hi. 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 Thank you. Uh, well, great. Well, let's uh, get into this. Well, you know, firstly, well, before we start, let, please, if you could just uh, introduce yourselves and given the context of what we're talking about today, just uh, tell us how long have you been working? Sure. So this is Lily Harder. I am Senior Director of Marketing Strategy at Compromedia, as well as a financial services thought leader. Uh, so as far as my history with work, I'd say I've been working for nearly 15 to 25 years, depending on whether you count those high school and college years I spent babysitting all the time. <laughs> Hi, my name is Behis Ilhan. Um, I'm a tr- Senior Trend Strategist at Mintel and a Brand Futurist. I provide futuristic opinions opinions and perspectives on trends and how they impact the brand landscape. And I have been on all fronts of work. Uh, I have an academic background. I have a startup uh, experience and now a corporate experience. So my first work was as a working as a diving instructor on a boat. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Uh, my name is Richard Cope. I'm the senior trends consultant here at Mintel in London. So my job is really to help our clients supply uh, future trends to their strategies and their businesses. And I've been working whoa, 30 years now. 30 years. So I'll mm. add in another sort of 27 years. So we're, we're getting there. We're plenty of years of work experience. But Bahi's first job as a dive master... That's uh, an interesting one and an exciting one. I think I was like, you know, sweeping the floor in the garden center. Um, what, was your, what was your first job, Lily? Uh, so in addition to all of the babysitting, the lemonade stands, I'd say one of my first memories of working was, um, this is funny, we, I grew up outside of Boston, in fact, walking distance from Fenway Park where the Red Sox play, and we had this really long driveway. So my siblings and I would actually sell parking spaces in our driveway because parking in downtown Boston is just a nightmare. So we would actually hold up a big sign and say, you know, $5 for parking, and we would, you know, give 10 or so cars a spot in our big driveway. And then um, the fun. Yeah, entrepreneurial. I think the funds got divvied up a little bit unevenly because I was the youngest of three and didn't know any better. But yeah, it was it was that first sort of foray into entrepreneurship. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> How about you, Richard? First job? Uh, first jobs were probably part-time jobs, sort of summer jobs. I grew up in the countryside in the, in the northwest of the UK. So kind of did innocent things like uh, I was an ice cream salesman. Um, I remember one summer I had a particularly grim job working on a chicken processing plant, which is like a chicken farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember one day 
had to cut off chickens' feet with seconders all day. Ooh, they were already dead. I, I wasn't add. expecting that. Uh, <laughs> then probably uh, did some more fun stuff later on, like uh, working on farms, driving tractors, even combine harvesters and things like that. So, yeah, it was fun. Oh, how different. All very different uh, experiences. That's great. I was thinking about my my first job sort of being paid, though, in a little packet, you know, where they would literally give the, pa- the coins and the notes in a little paper packet, yeah. you know. Um, so first job all those years ago. So, um, all right. So we're going to get into, we're going to talk today about the future ah. work. Um, we can't really talk about the future without considering the past, but we didn't want to spend too much time on that. So I asked Richard in advance of our podcast today if he could sum up the history of work in 90 <laughs> seconds no uh, not an easy task by any means but uh, well, I don't think he can yeah. but I'll try I mean I guess if you think about uh, <laughs> the last couple of hundred years I think I was thinking about this and it seems to be like it's been a, a sort of story arc if you like has been kind of you know the growing power of workers I guess the shift of power from employers towards workers but I think as we'll discuss today maybe that's turning back a little bit so I guess there's been a lot of progress in terms of, you know, it's work that's really built all the cities we live in. You know, it's real, you had lots of migrant labor, international migrant labor, rural to urban migrant labor. We've had automation has already happened. You know, we've had that happen 200 years ago, the industrial revolution. So we've been through that story of, you know, men and women versus machines and all that tension. I guess things have improved from... We still have child labor in some parts of the world. We still have dangerous working conditions, but thankfully for a lot of us, that's improved. I guess we had the, we had a sort of, you know, post-World War II, a big jobs boom, so-called economic miracles. And I guess with that, we had workers' rights, trade unionism, and we all started to sort of earn our leisure time and our holidays, you know, particularly in the 60s and the 70s onwards. Um, I guess what's happened now is those kind of lines between work and leisure have become a become a bit blurred with uh, uh, digital working. I guess some areas where we probably been a bit of a lack of progress still in things like diversity in the workplace, you know, pay parity by Mm -hmm. gender and things like that. But I guess the modern era, we talk a lot about digitizations, really kind of liberated in in a lot of ways, Um, created a lot of new jobs, created a lot of freedoms, created a lot of entrepreneurship. We still have, you know, the second we talked about, Industrial Revolution, I guess, in, here in the UK, Nottinghamshire, we had the so-called Luddites who were smashing up machines in the mills, which were taking their jobs, and we're now talking about whether yes. the same thing might be happening uh, with automation. And I guess we're also in the era of micromanagement. I guess it's one of the latest stories we're talking about with work, with us being you know, micromanaged, digitally tracked by our employees as well. So I think where we're at now on the curve is that sort of question of, you know, who's got the power, the, uh, the employers or the employees? Mm. So that'd be something interesting to talk about. Um, well, let's dig into that all a little bit in uh, in detail. So, so how has work changed? Um, you know, it's a very broad topic, but, you know, you know Richard covered a whole broad uh, and a range of different things there. So, but how has work changed? Um, what are the what sort of key areas uh, where you've seen change? So I, I think Richard summed it up. I mean, that, that history, it's just, it's um, a really interesting way to see that progression. But if you, if I were to put a microscope just on the last five to 10 years, I think one of the biggest changes to work is, has been the rise of the gig economy. Um, so I really see gig work as um, adding a new level of freedom and flexibility to the idea of work. But with that, I also think that the definition of what 
retirement is has inherently changed. So we're no longer expected to work for the same company for 30 to 40 years and then retire with a pension at 65 and and play golf all day. So those two changes, the idea of retirement and then the way in which we find work and do our work together, I think are are creating a really big change in in work today, which is going to, of course, drive where we see it going in the future. Yeah, I think in regard to um, that aging workforce, that's really interesting. We see a lot of sort of data out there about the you know huge amounts of people entering their senior years. You want more of a sort of flexible transition towards retirement. So I know they're a big part of the gig economy, right. things like you know Uber drivers and things like that. Um, and I guess this is one of the positive sides of automation and technology is a lot of a lot of those innovations are helping people you know continue working um, you know through. Um, how they can work at home or you've seen a lot of sort of automation and things in farming which is sort of helping people sort of work uh, agriculture and things into their old age as well so certainly here in the UK I know we've got you know around a fifth of people who would normally have retired by 65 are continuing to work and I guess some of that is them being forced to and some of that but some of that is definitely people wanting to and having the freedom to continue doing that um, I think these are very interesting micro uh, moments Andrew you know me by now I like to take it a little bit macro and in between the meso levels, how uh, the uh, cultural shifts and cultural fault lines at those uh, higher levels impact uh, individual behavior or interact with individual behavior. One of the things that I want to bring uh, on to I want to bring some attention is the nomadic consumers, nomadic behavior of consumers. People become more nomadic, meaning like they migrate. Some of these migrations movements, some of these movements are permanent, as uh, Richard mentioned about the um, global migration, like people uh, permanently moving one part of place to the other. Uh, part of the world and some of them are less uh, permanent more temporary like digital nomads there are 4.8 million independent workers uh, right now currently describe themselves as digital nomads and 17 million aspire to someday become nomadic so what does that mean they become uh, like move, they move a lot uh, in terms of places around the world and they still do work. So this digital nomads redefine what work is. And we also have some a little less um, permanent moves like the professional mobility where people can work from home or can work from different parts of the uh, city or closer cities. So different levels of mobility and different levels of understanding. Why does it matter because it deterritorializes the meaning of work what does it mean it uncouples the meaning of work from space that is what is called deterritorialization deterritorialization of work means like the meanings of work are uncoupled from spaces and identities um, so we can work from anywhere that makes the work fluid and is that what you that's what you mean by digital nomad that you could work in in london but be based out of the u.s or you yeah, could work yes. in when we, and I, th- I think that's really tied to the idea of being able to, even though it's taking the work away from the space, what I do think it's doing is bringing together the idea of work and lifestyle because these digital nomads, for the most part, are doing so because they can and they, they want to. And they're able to not only do the work that they hopefully want to be doing, but in the space in which they want to be doing it and enjoying their lives at the same time. And I think that that freedom and flexibility is, is really amazing that, that we can do that today. 
That, that's very true. And that also has implications for identity projects. Work doesn't define people anymore. The jobs don't define people. The lifestyle is. So I didn't, uh, this deterritorialization, this uncoupling from the space and work, uh, shapes the identities i'm not mm. normally if you ask a certain generation how they define themselves i'm this age i do this or i'm this yeah. but when you ask a certain generation you see that identity projects don't include the definition of work so that's also a deterritorialization so it, it doesn't only ho- happen in the work the work becomes fluid because home becomes fluid. Home becomes a contaminated hub where we work date shop stream all of those. So all of these dynamics uh, makes work and home fluid. The meaning of work uh, or the work becomes a fluid concept with overlapping, shifting and dynamic boundaries and meanings. That's what I understand from the work. That's really interesting. I, I, I wrote that down because it's like that's an interesting, you say jobs jobs don't define people, but lifestyles define people. But you say yeah, for that, some generations. I was going to say, you, I still feel that people, when their first question, well, what do you do for a living? You know, that's, you know, what do you do? Yeah. And we are, our identities are so wrapped up in our careers and um, in our jobs and work. I'm, yeah, I'm tempted to disagree a little bit, just in the interest of the podcast. <laughs> well, we, like, we like disagreement uh, on the podcast. I mean, the, it is kind of very liberating in a way, you know, the, the fluidity we're provided with by everything uh, you talked about there. But I guess it's also difficult, as we know, to kind of escape our jobs. And I talked about those lines being blurred between work and the rest of your lives because we're using the same channels. Yes, we might not have to go to an office or our workplace, but we are, you know, if we're connected virtually to our employers or our clients, you know, we are always on. And that's one of the big challenges, I think, uh, in today's society. So here in Europe, we see the statistics would tell us we're working less. Um, but I think, you know, the sentiment of people is they're working more or they find it more difficult to, maybe they're not defined by their job, but I think they're, their free time uh, is invaded by their job to a degree. Those, those barriers are kind of forever gone. Um, no, I like a good joust. Everybody knows about me. Uh, that, but uh, this doesn't. This exactly what I mean by fluid work. Yeah. Uh, meaning, it's not contained in one space. It's not contained in one place. It's not contained in certain time of the day. Yeah. Work becomes a fluid concept. And it all goes right back into the gig economy that Lily started yes, with. Yes, exactly. But it's like it's different for different people, isn't it? Because obviously. I mean, one of the things is how are these are these things we're talking about? Are they are they a truly global developments? Obviously, it would probably vary at different le- different levels, different levels of income, different types of jobs. Um, to use your analogy, I would say that it's a fluid that seeps into every aspect Thank you. of our lives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely. Nice. That's what I mean. Um, but consequences, we can talk about it as well. The, yeah, well, I mean. that's what I want to get to because, I, you know, obviously what you're hinting at, there's, you know, when Richard, when you're saying that people are working later and longer hours, you know, with gig economy, it implies this level of, fle- and digital nomad, it implies this sort of level of flexibility. But, you know, there's, there are positives and there are negatives to both. So let's talk a little bit then about, you know, some of the consequences either, you know, intended or otherwise of, of, of these developments. Coming back to the gig economy, I think, you know, it's a, um, it's a blessing and a curse in a way. So what we've seen in some of the 
U.S. consumer data is that what consumers say is their biggest motivator for work is providing for their family. Uh, And for younger consumers, especially millennials, the second biggest motivators are making ends meet, making ends meet, paying bills, you know, having a sense of security. So there is sort of that element of uh, necessity in a way to supplement income or um, round out their income with with gig work. Especially in the US with so many people struggling with paycheck to paycheck. Income inequality, all of this. So I really see a big consequence of whether it's the, the fluidity or gig economy. I mean, I think it comes down to financial independence. And, and this, again, comes back to my point about the definition of retirement that I talked about before. But uh, the, the way in which we work and our attitudes towards retirement or financial independence, whatever you want to call it, have changed so dramatically. So, you know, I think that the consequence is going to be this trajectory of work that's really shaped by the growing field of personal finance and, and how we how we manage our money and how we make sure we have enough of it now and in the future. One of the consequences here, I think, uh, in Europe, certainly view the gig economy is, uh, yeah, that lack of stability, which you, you referred to. I mean, uh, people are on zero-hours contracts. People have no guarantee of work. They don't know if they're working the next day or not. Um, you know, they often feel under pressure where they, they can't take, never mind time for holidays and things like that, but they often can't take sort of time for sort of medical appointments and things. So it's definitely, um, I think in some cases here, it feels like, you know, this fluidity is often, you know, benefiting the, uh, the contractor or the employer. It's all great if you're some freelance worker with your own business, but um, the flip side of it is I think the power has been concentrated in the hands of the employers. And there's certainly a lot of concern around that, around uh, health, stress and the lifestyles that entails. Yes, and they're making less when you look at um, that. Those are very valid points. Um, for, uh, building up on the gig economy and the digital nomads, and I will bring it to the other uh, nomadic behaviors as well. Uh, the consequences of gig economy is a global competition. Like there is talent now. We were limited with the talent force in our company, in our cities. It became in our nations. Now everybody's a competitor for each other, right? For a gig economy. That makes the uh, heart of the freelancer or the people who earn money from, earn their life from gig economy. It's a wild uh, zone, like, because you have to compete with someone from the other part of the world who is doing the same job, maybe cheaper. And because their living conditions are different. So it also puts new demands on our HR uh, systems about recruiting and evaluating work. If you have a digital nomad in your uh, labor force, how will you manage them? How will you give uh, divide work and give to them? We don't know. Our work uh, processes and evaluation uh, criteria are not built on uh, these type of nomadic behavior of the workforce. So, and uh, similarly, leadership as well, the skills, what skills will you ask from a, a generation who wants to be uh, mobile across different parts of the world? Right. We're not ready for we're not ready for that. And uh, it also I was at I'm in San Francisco. I took a picture of the spaces, this uh, uh, one of like a work type of a place. It was saying, welcome home. Oops, we meant welcome to work. So we have new physical spaces that works like that looks like work, but that has a new understanding that serves the people who have a fluid understanding of work, like spaces, we work or some um shared uh, office spaces right. and we have digital versions of these um, 
new understanding of work, digital tools that helps with this new understanding of work, like Slack. Slack is an open office uh, for many people, right, digitally. So um, these are the consequences. We have some developments digitally and also in the physical retail space uh, where we address this new understanding of work. Um, we have to have a global mindset, that's for sure, but it also has one more implication. The expectations from B2B technological tools are very much impacted by this nomadic behavior. So if I'm, if I'm a labor force, like going around, what I expect from Uber is what I expect from uh, Uber business or like something like a business right. solution on my. So these technologies need to address this uh, gap and they have to converge. Do you, do you think we're more effective, you know, with all of these changes, are we more effective? Is the workforce more effective? We don't know because our HR or HR criteria or our skills evaluations uh, or our KPIs are not uh, re-evaluated based on this new understanding of work. We are still on an previous understanding of work, our HR work. I do think the idea, though, of competition that you said is really interesting, too, because they're, you know, because we're digital and, and we're maybe not competing <clears throat> with just those in our town or in our physical uh, location that we're competing technically on a global level. I think that points to the fact that we are not as effective mm -hmm. as we probably could be and that we need to think about how the workforce ne needs to develop new skills and what are those skills going to be, be it, you know, communication or uh, what is it that's going to make them more competitive on a global scale. And, and mm -hmm. that's sort of a way that employers and brands and, and other marketplace participants could be helping consumers. On, on the point of efficiency, I would, I would agree. Yeah, I think um, there's a sense we're spreading ourselves uh, too thinly, if you like. I mean, I think the fact we use the same digital channels for work as we do for entertainment or social media, and I think that can create a real lack of efficiency. I mean, you've seen all the studies out there that say, you know, how long it, what Dan Early talks about getting, you know, in flow where you're really concentrating on a piece of work. And if you're interrupted to answer either work emails or other week emails, that disrupts your flow and it takes you a long time to get back into that focus. So my journal colleagues here, they always make fun of us when we sort of trade stats on the average working week between, say, the UK and Germany. And they say, yeah, well, we go to work, we do the work, or we work from home. You guys are taking breaks every 10 minutes to go on social media. Uh, you're answering things on WhatsApp or Facebook, we don't have that culture. Um, we get on with it. And I know, I mean, in Germany, the companies, the employers are trying to do the same thing. You know, it must be at least sort of five years since people like Daimler start having, stopping people from being, having access to their work email out of office hours and at the weekend because they thought that led to less focused, um, poor quality performance in their jobs. And they really wanted to try and bring back almost the kind of pre-digital you know, nine to five, if you're lucky, focus we'd have. And then evenings and weekends are when you recharge and they believe that makes for a more effective employee. So that's yeah, certainly sort that's, of sticking that's, to that, that view. That's fascinating, but, yeah. isn't it? And then because like, yes, and it just goes back like, and then connects back to what Bahis was saying about the office space. It's like, it's like even, even the offices are blending into how people you know, even at Mintel, we have a, a you know ping pong yes. ping pong table at the uh, at the office. Sleep pods, and, like uh, Zen you know, Back in the day, you'd put the suit on to go to work, and now people, at many companies, sort of you know, sort of adopted sort of more casual look. Um, so, but I wanted to get you. You mentioned uh, stress there, Richard, a little bit earlier. Can we dig into that a little bit more? Because the whole thing does sound quite stressful when we describe it. Yeah, I mean. 
as I say, I mean, the stats tell us we're working less here in Europe, yet, you know, the figures would also tell you in the UK there's more and more days being lost to, working days being lost to stress and depression, you know. Um, obviously, in uh, Japan is famous for this. They have a word, karoshi, which means death from overwork. Um, so this doesn't seem to be abating. I think it is... It's connected, I guess, to some of the digital factors I talked, where it's difficult yeah. to switch off and get work-life balance. Some of the economic pressures, everyone else has already already talked about in terms of the gig economy. And, you know, at the younger end of the spectrum, it's a very, very competitive uh, job marketplace, in part, also due to those seniors we talked about who won't get out of the job pipeline and they're staying in work uh, quite happily into their 80s and 90s as well. So... Back to automation, you've got a very uh, competitive marketplace. Yeah, I mean, we just we need to turn all of this. I mean, all of these tools and these changes, or they all sound. We just need to use them and leverage them to our benefit rather than making us stressed yeah. out uh, so i mean so one thing is you know one thing is certain you know the the, the work has changed it's cha- continues to change obviously very different to the you know the work my parents did is very different to the work i'm doing the, the work of our children and grandchildren is going to look very different um but i i do want to get to the elephant in the room um which is this whole balance between humans and machines um the uh, McKinsey a couple of years ago put out a statistic or they did some research that sort of suggested that a third of all US workers were going to be displaced by automation by the year 2030, um, which sounds like you know, not that far off. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how they, they got their numbers, but they're implying 800 million globally could be impacted um, and that governments potentially need to step in and help with this transition. And it was very interesting because, you know, with the presidential or the Democratic primary uh, that was that's been going on here in the United States, one of the candidates mm-hmm. who subsequently dropped out of the race, but based his whole idea um, or based his whole campaign on this idea of displacement of American workers through automation. And he had proposed what he called this freedom dividend. Andrew Yang is his name, proposed a freedom dividend of $1,000 for every citizen in the US to sort of help them with this whole transition. Um, and his idea, of okay. course, is that you're, he would tax the big tech companies that are benefiting so much from automation. Um, interesting idea. Um, obviously, it's critical to this whole discussion around humans versus machines. But w- what did you think of that? I'll jump in. I mean, I, I, I think his idea has merits, definitely. I'm not convinced that the rise of the machines uh, is really the best argument for instituting this concept of a universal basic income. Um, it, there was an interesting, there is actually currently an interesting pilot going on. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of this. Um, it's the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration. So it's SEED for short. So this is actually an experiment that began in February of 2019. It's actually still going on. I think they're going to conclude it this summer. But this is the first mayor-led guaranteed income initiative, and it's piloted in a town in California called Stockton. And they're they're trying to uh, they're trying to describe this as a hand up, not a hand out. And so what they've done is they've given each recipient a debit card that automatically loads $500 every month. And uh, this way they can actually categorize what those funds are being spent on. So really interesting experiment. So far, the results have been pretty positive. Um, you know, one of the, the dangers of this 
supplementation to low wages and low income is that the income boost could potentially be enough to make those people ineligible for other government benefits. Um, But so far, the findings from that universal basic income experiment um, have led to increases in health and education. And there's there have been some really positive outcomes among the participants in that study who really were below that that poverty line. So, you know, I, I think there are definitely arguments toward this, um, you know, whether we're talking about instituting it now if it is um, definitely, I think, a different argument than in 2030 if the machines really are rising up and, and taking over a third of those jobs. So I do think it's a different argument, but mm. but one that holds some ground. Well, I think it was interesting that he, I mean, he was only, Andrew Yang was really the only person that sort of was bringing this to everybody's attention. And obviously, it is a huge issue that isn't really being discussed. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess the, the worry is, you know, from when I've, we've got government clients, you know, the, the, the worry is robots and chatbots don't pay tax. Um, as well as sort of, you know, we have companies which are increasingly uh, not dependent on having huge volume, employing huge volumes of people anymore. I mean, the, the famous one that's always used is, you know, let's look at Kodak, uh, you know, how they operated, you know, 20, 30 years ago and how someone like Instagram operates now. They're not big employers, um, the leading sort of brands and companies in the world. So, yeah, it's answering that need. I know similar schemes have been, I think, drawn trial in Helsinki we saw a couple of years ago. We've got people looking at um, slightly different issues of people, you know, experimenting with the idea of four-day weeks and things like that. I mean, that's funny. If you, if you go back and look at the predictions people were making sort of 30, 40 years ago was that automation would all, you know, leave us all bathing in leisure now. You know, we would all be working right. like one and a half days a week and everything else would be taken care of, but uh, it hasn't seemed to happen. So maybe the people who are doing mongering about automation might, you know, might bear that in mind. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Well, we've obviously, the Industrial Revolution, we've been through... And we've, you know, it's it's not exactly one and one and done anyway. It's we've it's a continuous thing, you know. Maybe is now different. I mean, a lot of people might argue that the pace of change is now um, accelerating. I want to give a number from World Economic Forum. Yeah, uh, go at, for at, it. at this point, uh, the division of labor between humans and its 2018 numbers is 70 30. Uh, like 70 percent human and 30 percent machines and robots. So the machines like broader mm. and uh, in two, 2022 it will be 5842 that number and by 2025 it will be 52 robots and 48 machines hmm. percent so by 2025 the uh, the balance will tilt um, I always say like uh, the, you know uh, I have mentioned that in my pre- in our previous pre- podcast, but uh, just to uh, remind uh, our audience, um, coexistence is a major uh, futuristic discussion. I make sure all of our clients here. Uh, Digital civilization will be a mash of human and non-human agents. Here, the trend is not automation. The trend is coexistence, like how we will be coexisting with non-human agents and interacting and working together to help each other to do what we do best. And this has phases, like earlier on, uh, robots or these non-human agents think broadly, AI is a non-human agent, drone is a non-human agent, bot is a non-human agent, so robot is a non-human agent. So previously, uh, these non-human agents were servants, quote in quotes, just um, there can be better ways, like they were doing what we were saying. Now they're becoming coworkers, 
So they're helping us to do what we do best. And in the future, you make the mat. I always say, like, everybody said, like, when will this be mainstream? I mean, you can, wor- you can walk backwards on a going up ele- escalator that doesn't change where it's going. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that one. I mean, you can't you can just, like, be analog. The, the, no. the math level is going to a different level. Well, yeah. and by 2025, the majority of our labor force will be machines. Well, the, main, the mainstream capability is there. It's just, you know, the budget. I mean, all these, you see all these figures. I think Oxford University you know, identified over 700 jobs, which could be automated. Right. The technology, the capacity exists to do it tomorrow. You know, it's whether the companies have the budget to actually translate to that um, right now. I, th- I think the concern is, you know, when we look at previous industrial revolutions, I think the concern now is... Um, it's not as easy. Um, I don't think the analogy fits of people who uh, could operate machines or get trained to use them. Now you're talking about people having very specific skill sets to do this. I, what, I think what the worry is, like a big sort of group of unskilled labor, and it's not, you know, many um, you talked, talked about um, working together. So something like one of the most famous examples of automation would be something like, a, you know, a something on a, a robot on a car assembly line. That's a brilliant example of that because that works alongside uh, human workers. But I guess the fear is it's, it's more, maybe jobs you don't really think about, you know, the kind of repetitive things, you know, cler- a lot of clerical jobs, a lot of uh, research jobs, a lot of sort yes. of, you know, telemarketing sure. jobs. I think a lot of that kind of thing is massively under threat. The question is, how do we replace that? There's already quite scary statistics from the International Labour Organization about, you know, the number of under 24s who are already out of work and looking for work. So if you have the skills to work in this, great. If you don't, that definitely concerns me. And, and that's and that's the question because, like, you know, when I think about this, you know, are we really going to be, you know, taking the automating the trucks and then the truck drivers really retraining as coders or you know, is that realistically going to happen? Um, which obviously goes back to the whole idea that Lily was discussing of the universal basic income to help people to, to transition to that. Is that actually a realistic assumption? I always like to throw out the Bill Gates quote where he says, you know, we always overestimate the amount of progress we'll make in the next five years and we underestimate the amount of progress we'll see in the next in 10. Right, um, right. And I think it's interesting that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think at some point we will, but, but yes, there will be that, that yeah. tr- transition. And I don't know that the truck drivers will become coders, but um, my, my assumption is that with the creation of the autonomy, new needs will pop up as well. And new, new needs that we can't even fathom that will need that, that human element. If it's I so- always tell, no, go ahead. Richard. Sorry. I was going to say, if it, if it saves companies and customers money, it'll happen. Um, and that applies to a lot of what we've spoken about. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. Um, I think we are missing, uh, I always tell to clients, uh, if you think it on this individual level, robots come and an individual worker is gone, you will not see the bigger system level change. The system level change is just like how we will, at this level, we will help each other to do what we do best. For example, there's a book about how AI is helping doctors or MDs to focus on what they're doing best rather than doing this administrative stuff. So this is one level we need to understand. And the second level, we will have new economic agents. We have discussed this 
in the Future of Money podcast, Andrew, how the, these non-human agents will earn money, save money for you, like how the Jaguar e-wallet is basically earning money by communicating the potholes and the traffic jam to the servers and it, in terms of cryptocurrency, and it can uh, spend that money. That's the definition of being an economic agent, mm. how your car will yeah. earn money after it leaves, it leaves you at your work and work the whole day uh, doing Uber and we will see new economic agents. If we only see the story, robot comes, the person goes, then we will miss these system level changes sure. that has implications. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good point. And I, I, but I want, I want to get to you, so you're like, and I think I know what, I think I would anticipate what you might all say, but like when I think back, you know, my mom was a secretary, right? So that's a job that you know doesn't exist in the same form you know, my my dad was a, a personal man, personnel manager and that was like you know now it's human resources you know this change is change is continuous so what makes it different now Could I, can i just say one point more on uh, <laughs> automation it's a bit tangential but it does fit with your question is one thing i think is a concern is the way employment is headed the industries the technologies are very male dominated in what is already a male-dominated workplace. So if we look at the companies who are leading this drive towards automation, you look at their um, their profiles, they're extremely male-dominated, definitely an exec level. And I think that that is a concern which uh, needs to be addressed. You know, we already have you know, big imbalances on what women earn compared to what men do. You know, the famous stat here in London is that um, there are six female CEOs on FTSE 100 companies. There are seven CEOs called Dave. And the tech industry is you know, more male bias even than, you know, government or what these industries are. So that's definitely sort of added concern to that in terms of uh, the future. Yeah, I mean, I'm still trying to formulate my, my thought on this, but I, th- I think, you know, one of the biggest differences is, is really the uh fragmentation that we're seeing so you know back when our parents were in the workforce there were it seemed like there was a finite number of possible jobs that they could be doing whether it's doctor lawyer secretary mechanic whatever Mm. um it seemed like a finite number and we've entered this era where there are literally infinite different iterations of types of jobs they could do let alone jobs on top of jobs on top of jobs and so you know i i see the biggest change is just being the availability of of options, but also um, sort of places and ways in which we do the work. So I, I just think all of that is is really um, going to change how we do it. And then I, you know, I still come back to that idea of the financial independence. So what's driving us, whether it's our our family or just making ends meet. Um, I think those financial implications are going to be the big driver of, you know, people trying to do whatever they can do to uh, connect the dots with their personal finance and and whether it's just making it through the day to day or actually having enough to think about the future. Um, I I think that's where we're going to see some of the biggest change. Yeah. And I mean, what you were saying there about options, of course, it ties in really with what Richard was saying. I mean, I, when I refer to my mum being a secretary, I think, you know, the options for women back then were, you know, school teacher, secretary, you know, nurse, you know, obviously we've made some progress, but clearly um, with all the Daves, we haven't really uh, mm-hmm, made mm-hmm. Uh, the, the progress. We, yeah, we've got a long way to go. But just to sort of, just to tie back to my question to you, I just, if one person could say, why now? Is it just, autom- is it just that autom- uh, you know, I, AI and... I mean, why is, is this pace accelerating? Is that it? Is it AI? It's everything together. 
um, the uh, most of the t- uh, at this point in in our era, the pace of technologies are dependent on each other. The self-driving car needs 5G to work. 5G mm-hmm. needs investment to work. So it's just like there's a convergence of technologies uh, where uh, they each determine each other's pace. And we have come, mm-hmm. uh, we have taken big strides in several of them. That's why it's converging faster and faster to uh, the planned or imagined future. Uh, that's that's the reason why. But also, I have read a book about, uh, uh, it's an amazing book, uh, Vaclav Smil, about growth, how the trends happen in different categories, the growth, and it was talking about uh, the demographic shift. Demographic shift is what Richard calls the aging of generations for many nations, but also a decline in fertility. So in the future, in the in the past, we had a better fertility rate where more young people were coming. Now we have longer lives and less young people jumping on the labor force. This will change the dynamics significantly in the future. Mm. But but I I well I just want to say I don't think it's I think AI is part of it. But I think what got us to where we are right now. I mean, in my opinion, is mobile. I think being able to take communication on the go with us. I mean, granted, we're past mm. that in some respects and AI is important, but I think mobile was the biggest instigator of this speed of change because it allowed us to do whatever we do not in the location where we used to do it and we could mm-hmm. do it from anywhere. I refrain, yeah, I refrain from like identifying one technology or like mobile is dependent on the chip technology the chip technology dependent on this like there's a convergence of all of this there you have it our pre-covid 19 discussion on the future of work i recently caught up with Bahis, richard and lily to see how they think covid 19 will impact these trends well welcome back hi andrew hello hey Good to have you all back. Well, since we had that chat, the world of work as we knew it has changed drastically. Um, I'm glad you're all doing okay and I'm back to continue this discussion. Now, work has changed drastically in the short term and we'll be forced to navigate uncharted territory as states and countries open with social distancing. I'm interested to get your thoughts really on how all of this will impact the long term. So, you know, first, thinking about our pre-COVID discussion and, and the vision of, of the future that you all painted, you know, has COVID-19 changed that vision? Um, I'm, yeah, I think it's accelerated a lot of the things we talked about. I mean, one thing that really struck me was we talked about a growth in more digital working, a growth in more home working, which has clearly come about for some people who are able to do that. And I remember we were talking a lot about how it affects work-life balance. So that really feels like a permanent issue now. People trying to balance work uh, with leisure, but also their families, you know, people having to balance work against homeschooling and things like that. So I think that's something that's really accelerated and really come to the fore for a lot of people who probably weren't experiencing some of those stresses and tensions beforehand. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, definitely things have accelerated here. I uh, personally can commiserate. I went from working from home in a very empty house every day and now trying to work from home in a very, very full house. And it is um, completely turned things upside down. But, you know, I, I'm one of the lucky ones, I will say. And, and my biggest concern with everything that's been happening is just the widening gap that we're seeing between those who are able to continue working usually from home, many from home, and those um, who are not. And so um, not only is there a really large gap right now 
between the haves and the have nots for, you know, thinking about people who have lost their jobs entirely. But I'm going to see, I'm expecting to see sort of a new type of classism almost that may start to arise between those uh, in careers that are able to be done from the home and those that are not. And sort of the definition of um, the types of jobs we have and, and where they can be performed, I think is really, really um, emphasized right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a great, um, I think, um, topic to build on. And I realized, Andrew, I was in San Francisco. That was my last trip in the... Yes, you <laughs> that was like, oh, I was in San Francisco. So uh, back in Chicago, that uh, classicism is very important. Uh, the class, the new class understanding, working from home assumes a home, right? Assumes that you have a home. Assumes that you have a working connection. Assumes that you have a laptop. Assumes that you have a space to work from home. So that accelerated things in the ways that digitalism uh, has changed our lives. So we were using Zoom. So there are different phases of this. The the laggards, the late adopters are coming on board for this last phase of digitalism, adopting these digital technologies. And this will go on with more and new phases of digitalism where our reality will be layered with virtual and augmented realities. Uh, Those will be newer definitions of work. This acceleration will continue and will change our ecosystem of reality in work as well. So the Microsoft HoloLens, the special uh, is a office solution where virtual and augmented uh, versions of people can coexist and interact with each other and remotely collaborate. So this, uh, Classicism will deepen uh, and uh, will accelerate further. I think it's interesting because I, you know, obviously a lot of this has been forced upon us. We've got millions of people around the world who are unemployed or have had their pay reduced or furloughed or, or are struggling financially. You know, we've all been all been forced to do things differently, working from home. Uh, if you can, but what, what do you what do you all think of the you know? So, but this has been forced. This is definitely happening right now, and then in the interim, and then we're going to be having to navigate this sort of uh, recovery phase as well. But what do you think of the enduring themes? What do you think is really going to endure as a result of this crisis? Um, well, picking up on Lily's theme, I, I really do think workers' rights is something we're all you know hearing a lot more about as well. I mean, it is a privilege, as Lily suggested. You know, if you can work at home here in the UK, it's definitely revealing you know another aspect of a social divide. I mean, if you get out of London and the southeast, and you look at the proportions of people who can do that, that's really coming to the fore. And I think all the discussion around essential workers is really, really interesting um, yes. because. We are realizing that a lot of these essential workers, you know, um, they don't have the same rights a lot of other workers have. It's very dependent on a lot of uh, migrant workers who, indeed, governments are sort of clamping down on their rights as well. So we talked about, I remember we talked about how, you know, your job defined you. And there was kind of some friendly discussion about whether that was true or not. And I think we are seeing people defined to degree by their jobs because some people have to travel on public transport. Some people have to go to their job. And, you know, the, the, the facts here in the UK, and I think lots of part of the world is, you know, you look seeing ethnic minorities having much higher fatality rates. And one of the reasons is they're on the front line. They have to go to dangerous workplaces. They have to travel on public transport. So I think we've seen us get more defined by this. And my hope is that, you know, it brings a lot of these issues to the fore and we do see, you know, um, this workers' right issue addressed, you know, by governments and, and by voters, you know. 
I think the quote was, lifestyles define people, <laughs> Dr. Fahis Ilhan. Well, that's true as well. That, do you, do you, how do you feel about that quote? No, uh, I think Richard is just uh, very um, right about this. A great observation. The essential workers, their experiences and their jobs start to define mm. them uh, mm. and their identity at this particular moment. And I think it will be for a while. That's a very important, the essential, the uh, essential uh, workers. We need to go a little deeper into that. Maybe Lily will and I will also uh, complete. For me, the theme is um, for this is resilience. Mm. Everybody thinks that unprecedented is the key word here. And I think it's resilience. Uh, resilience, uh, because um, it has phases. This is not one phase. We have gone through phases of this, the resilience. I will give you one example. Poor toilet paper story is very interesting here. We started hoarding toilet paper or we didn't have enough stocks because the toilet paper production lines have been designed for some work use because people use toilet paper at work and not designed 100% domestic use. So that's why mm. the, the production lines could not switch and we didn't, they weren't planned for 100% domestic use and the type of toilet paper is different uh, that is produced for uh, B2B enterprise versus domestic use, the plies, the size, the product packaging. Even this tells us how the routines, habits and rituals that we have related to work and related to home have bigger implications. So that's why the resilience, how these behavior changes, how they persist and how they will be permanent uh, will define uh, the long-term trends. I agree with that. And I think, I think there's the behaviors. I think there's also the, a mindset. I think we're going to see a permanent shift in mindset coming back to the essential versus non-essential. Not only um, are there a lot of current issues involved, but I'm just thinking about um, even younger consumers who maybe don't have their career picked or decided on yet. Now, when they think about what do I want to do, they are going to be analyzing jobs and future career paths from this lens of essential versus non-essential. And there's two sides of the coin because on the essential side, you know, you are on the front lines and you are facing danger and, and it could be a very high risk job. But at the same time, it might be perceived as a more secure job because you are actually essential. And in a crisis like this, your job is secured versus um, other people who are considered non-essential, many of whom lost their jobs. So there's this, I think, balance or um, decision that's going to have to be made when it comes to career choices now between that idea of risk versus um, security, stability, all of that going into this new idea of essential, which when we recorded the podcast originally, this term essential wasn't even on our minds. So what you're, you're saying that as people start to make career choices, they will be weighing up this whole. I think that, that concept of, of is this, is this a, an essential career or not? And what yeah. does that mean for my lifestyle? Right. And I was just, you know, it's interesting. Like, so you, Bahis, you mentioned resilience. Are you saying then that, that this is going to be an enduring theme that people are going to be more resilient? That there's going to, Can you expand a little bit more about that in terms of how people think about work? Um, on an individual basis? For example, uh, I'm expecting a multi-skilled worker uh, force because if I don't, for example, uh, if I cannot take more than 10 people in my restaurant, I don't want specialization, right? That resilience about like building your career will be mm. important. 
happened. Resilience of behaviors uh, in uh, work, how we work, uh, the -hmm. routines, habits uh, will define us. So that's what I mean. The resilience of systems uh, will uh, define uh, the work. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the other things I think important in as a trend uh, is I want to revisit the nomadic consumers we talked about in the previous section and uh, nomadic consumers digital nomads are not there anymore the professional mobility is gone the immigration has stopped so the nomadic consumers have stopped at some level but uh, is starting on another level many people are moving to rural areas i've heard that the uh, the housing prices in connecticut has gone up uh, because of like many people uh, who doesn't want to uh, live in the city are going and buying uh, houses from there or in San Francisco many people who have gone uh, who have been paying all these rent are going to rural areas and uh, start to work from there so Mm. there is a migration to rural area but i was thinking like will this decrease the prices for new york for uh, the salaries for new york and for san francisco where people were being paid for the uh, cost of living there and apparently facebook has uh, traced someone who moved to texas uh, and was still being paid on san francisco level and they decreased the salary so they realigned the salary. So this might have implications, this migration pattern. If we can work from home, then why am I paying all that rent? Uh, people move to rural, but if the companies uh, are taking precautions for their salary adjustments, there's another dynamic there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely that argument here in the UK that this might cause a degree of maybe not de-urbanization, but people sort of moving out of places like London. But then... I've had nice conversations with people where people have argued, well, it actually might open up city centers to people as well, because if, you know, the office retail space, the office space is going to diminish, you're going to get uh, more opportunities, people to live in city centers. I know we saw this happen a lot in the, in the States in previous decades as well. I think one of the themes I'd just like to raise is, um, you know, in terms of who's going to bear the brunt of difficulties around work, it is likely to be those uh, younger groups. Now, they are the people who are probably most skilled at trying to sort of find different ways of working, but we're already seeing signs of that in, you know, here in Europe. I mean, Southern Europe, we've got massive youth unemployment in countries like Italy, Spain. That's had big political ramifications, you know, anti-migrant sentiment, you know, far-right politics, you know. People are concerned that that... Uh, that is going to be a knock-on effect of this as well. You know, you know it is the younger people who are bearing mm. the brunt of, you know, non-hires and things. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's interesting. That I, in a separate conversation, Lily and I were having about younger, you know, the younger generation. And, you know, each generation has their sort of seminal moment, right? So whether it's the baby boomers with the assassination of JFK or whether it was the millennials with the Great Recession, is this the sort of the seminal moment for... Uh, Gen Z in terms of how it's going to disrupt graduation and work and, and all that going forward. Uh, but let, let's go, I want to go ask you another question here. I want to think about, uh, so obviously there are going to be winners and losers um, out of this. Um, you know, will, will employers or workers, I mean, either really, you know, of the future benefit from this disruption? Will there, will, will there be positives uh, coming out of this? And any thoughts on that? And if so, why? 
I can uh, go in. The narrative here is shaped by a friction between dystopia and utopia. So um, we have this utopic view on the, um, not only for work, for the generally beyond the pandemic or during the pandemic. Everything is okay. The climate change is happening because we're not out or we will find a vaccine. We need it to slow our lives. We're investing in ourselves. That's the utopic vision. And the other vision is the, the dystopian vision uh, or all these debt, unemployment, um, uh, the virus, uh, the world is going to end as we know it and all, right? And these are shaping how people are approaching what will happen afterwards. So some people want to go back to normal, mm-hmm. right? Uh, as is, because normal is what they are used to. It's familiar, it's known. And some people are preparing for the new normal, like consultants like us or like strategists like us are thinking about what's, hap- what's going to happen in the future. Uh, I am uh, somewhere in between. I see this as a friction. So, for example, this essential and redundancy, everything that we deem essential now, the workers, we realize we didn't need all these rituals and habits in the workplace, right? We didn't need all these meetings we didn't need all these client travels we we didn't need them so we redefined the essential for our work so we will keep them but the, the point is we cannot drop everything we deem redundant so some of these redundancies institutionalized the nine to five routine or uh, some of the client work these are institutionalized these are industrial understandings of work so it will not. It will be very difficult to really leave them. But what will happen is this will dissolve uh, slowly. And for example, the pace of cities will change. The industrial pace of cities brought us the rush hour. So that will change because people will not go to work at the same time. And we will not have only one shift or two shifts. Maybe because of this social isolation or social distancing, we will have multiple shifts. So I see one or the other, what we will pick, the essential will be redefined and it will have a friction with the redundancy and that redundancy is difficult to break. So that's what I see this going in terms of work. Interesting. We need some positivity. I mean, I'll, I'll go for I'll go for a utopian uh, angle. But he wasn't being negative there. But she's saying she's saying <laughs> both. But I mean, there's definitely negatives. But I think the positives, as we talked about, you know, some of us lucky enough to um, work from home are going to enjoy hopefully a degree of fluidity and freedom if we can work out how to make this new form of, of working work for us. And then I think the others, the people we've talked about. Um, who we've seen on the front line. I mean, I would hope that, you know, what's going to come out of this is they're going to win recognition and, you know, they're going to win sort of rights. So there'll be an, an improvement in employment standards, as you'd like. I think that's the positive thing we can sort of hope for um, that comes out of this. So hopefully that will. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. I definitely think, you know, we have to address the elephant in the room. You know, if we're likely in a recession, I think we're pretty much there. Um, so there's going to be a recovery process. And um, as with any recession, it's it's not great for employers or workers. But back to Bahisa's original point about resiliency. I mean, I think we are a resilient society. And, um, you know, I think necessity is absolutely the mother of invention. And so we're coming up with new ways to address, you know, touch-free environments, touch-free shopping, touch-free dining. We're going to come up with ways for um, work environments that that work for individual situations. And I think we are going to see some really 
innovative ideas for how uh, employers are able to manage the, the workspace and how workers are able to um, balance those those needs, those um, requirements, in addition to all of the personal things going on. So I, I would like to take an optimistic view, but realistic about the recovery process that's going to take to get there. We see the return of the union. Some variation of that. I mean, it's just interesting. Is it it's sort of obviously it's amplified or exposed how you know these types of organisations actually uh, help help work help workers. On the global level, the unions will be not on the country, but I think on the global level. It's good news for employers potentially as well. We've talked about optimistic view of the workers. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of employers are writing this thinking, oh, we can save lots of money on offices. It's a lot cheaper to invest in IT infrastructure than it is in uh, real estate, business travel, etc. So um, I guess that's mm. something they're, they're eyeing as well. I think it could be, it's obviously good news for those kind of third places we've talked about for a long time as well. If we are going to work from home more and we want to have that balance, then, you know, businesses in our local communities, you know, if we do navigate distancing in the future, they could be the ones to really benefit from this. They might benefit like local economies and things around our homes a bit more. Mm. I think it'll be interesting to listen back to this sort of, you know, in like three months time when uh, kind of gone started to go through all this sort of opening up to see if we still you know predict the same things, um, whether things have changed again, because things are changing so rapidly. So I think with that, we'll leave it there. So thank you, Bahis. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Lily. Um, as with everything at the moment, things are changing at a rapid pace. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review this podcast on iTunes or any other platform you get your podcast from, Apple, Spotify. So spread the word and uh, we'll catch you next week for a new episode of Little Conversation. If you want to know more about Mintel, who we are and what we do, head over to mintel.com. Follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And check out our blog for even more insights from our analysts. Thank you. Thank you.